I think it's safe to say we all um, have heavy hearts right now. There's a lot of heavy hearts in this, in this sanctuary this morning. <laughs> um, you know, we, we've each made um, deposits in each other's lives for the past 14 years. And you, you started it because <laughs> we showed up here and we didn't know what to expect. We left our family in Pennsylvania, trusting God's leading. And this church family embraced us and, and loved on us. And you, you enveloped us and made us your own. And you started making deposits of love in our lives. And so we reciprocated. We started making deposits of love into this church family. And we've made a lot of deposits in our lives for the past 14 years. And the heaviness of our hearts, the, 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 the sadness that we're feeling and, and dealing with right now is because there's, there's about to be a huge withdrawal, right? But, but let me remind us all that we're not gonna be overdrawn. None of us. There's been enough deposits that can handle this, this, this withdrawal that's going to take place. His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. You know, I, I, I've been thinking and wrestling um, for, for weeks now. What in the world am I going to say, you know, the last Sunday here, the last time I preach? In, um, in this sanctuary, and, and I, I just kept coming back to um, what, what I believe is, is my heartbeat and my, my life's message. Um, and I, I've, I've preached you know, bits and pieces of, of this over the years here, and some of it you'll, you'll recognize and you will have heard before, but... Um, Life in the church, life in the kingdom of God. I, I just don't know how. I just don't know how people in the world, outside of the church family. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they survive. I, I couldn't do that. You know, I'm 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 one of nine children. Grew up in a very um, difficult, poor, dysfunctional home. And when I went away to college, God took me out of that, God, God, I, I, I don't understand all that God has done for me. I, I don't deserve all that God has done for me and how he has blessed me, but he, he pulled me into his family, the family of God. That's why I asked the band to sing that last song. That's kind of my heartbeat, that song, To Know You. God pulled me out of, out of pain and brokenness and dysfunction and placed me in his family he gave me the church family, <laughs> gave me a beautiful wife and two beautiful children who love the Lord. <laughs> we put down roots, start to put down roots in Pennsylvania near our family, and God takes me from there and places me here. And again, we start making deposits in each other, other's lives, and our lives and ministry have been so enriched and blessed by how you have received us and, and, and loved us and you've served us and, and Gary Jones and Dan Whitney, how they've 
mentored me and, and modeled for me um, how a loving pastor leads a congregation. Um, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed. I'm, I'm just, last, last night, um, all of those who, who shared, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> um, maybe we should get into this a little bit, huh? So thank you, um, thank you. Again, we, we, we're, we're experiencing, both of us, right? We're both experiencing a, a, a big withdrawal, but there's, there's been enough deposits of love that can, that can cover that. So I wanna ask you to think about a question for a moment or two. Just answer this question in your own mind. <clears throat> um, this is kind of a theological question. If, if I were to ask you, what, what is the gospel that Jesus himself came to preach? How, how would you answer that question? In a few words or a short sentence, how would you answer the question, what is the gospel that Jesus himself came to preach? The gospel as Jesus proclaimed it. Now that might sound like a really simple question for a, a, a lot of us who've been in the church for a long time. <clears throat> But I think that many people would not give the same answer to that question that the Bible does. So I want to read, I'm going to read, I'm probably going to quote 18 or 20 uh, verses of Scripture this morning. Um, so I'm not going to ask you to stand every time I read from, read from the Gospels. But I am going to start off uh, reading a few verses from the Gospels. First from, from, from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. This is verses 14 and 15. After John was put into prison... Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Now when Jesus had, had gathered his 12 disciples together, his, his uh, strategy for communicating the same message to everyone was this. This is Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. When Jesus sent out his disciples, he sent them out to proclaim one message. This is Luke 9, 1. One day Jesus called the 12 together and gave them power and authority to cast out demons, cure diseases, and to preach the kingdom of God. After Jesus rose from the dead, he spoke to his disciples about one topic. This is Acts 1, 3. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So now, if I ask you to answer that question, what is the gospel that Jesus himself came to preach, what would you say? Yeah, it's about the kingdom of God. The gospel, or good news, is, is, is simply this. The kingdom of God is available right now for you and for me and anyone else to live in. Right here, right now, and you can live in it if you want to. That's the kingdom of God. That's the gospel that Jesus came to preach. But I agree with my favorite author, John Ortberg, who says that something very tragic has happened in many, many churches, and probably, probably for tens of thousands, maybe millions of Christians around the world, and that is that the gospel has been substituted 
for what might be called the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. Maybe people wouldn't use those exact words, but for many, many people, that's what the gospel has been reduced to. The minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. A, a, a picture that, that might help illustrate this point a little bit um, comes from a, a, a deeply sophisticated and very theological film called Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So, so there's a few, you know, I don't know about, so in the early to mid 90s in, in college, especially at a Christian college, like Monty Python movie marathons were, were the norm. I mean, slap, British slapstick humor, ridiculous, but funny. That's how we spent a lot of weekends. Anyway, towards the end of this movie, um, there's a scene <clears throat> where um, King Arthur has three of his knights with him. He approaches uh, this castle. They're, they're, they're on this quest to seek the Holy Grail. They gotta get into this castle, but they have to cross this, the, the, it's called the Bridge of Death. They have to cross the Bridge of Death, which, which spans this chasm known as the Gorge of Eternal Peril. The Gorge of Eternal Peril. They gotta cross the Bridge of Death, and this Bridge of Death is guarded by this old, blind, gnarled bridge keeper who asks everyone who attempts to cross this bridge three questions. And, and you have to answer all three questions correctly in order to cross the bridge and get into the castle. If you, if you don't, if you simply miss one of them, you're cast down in, into the abyss, the gorge of eternal peril, and you die. So King Arthur approaches with three of his knights, and he sends one, one knight first to, to the bridge, and, and this, this knight comes up to the bridge and faces this old gnarled bridge keeper. He's, he's terribly nervous, not sure what questions he's gonna ask. His first question is, what's your name? Shares his name. What's your quest? Okay, my quest is to seek the Holy Grail. His third question is, what's your favorite color? Red. Okay, off you go, cross the bridge, it's easy. Three questions, oh, that was simple, that was easy. So the second night approaches, hearing the exchange, feeling very confident, Oh, I can do this. State your name, he does. State your quest, he does. But his third question is, what's the capital of Assyria? And the knight says, I don't know that. Ah! And he's cast down into the gorge of eternal peril, down into the abyss. So the third knight now approaches, and he's, he's very nervous. He's so nervous, he gets the first two questions. State your name, state your quest. He, his third question is also, What's your favorite color? But he's so nervous, he says, red, no, I mean blue, too late, ah! And he's cast down into the abyss. Pure craziness, I know. So that finally leaves King Arthur. So King Arthur approaches the, the old gnarled bridge keeper. What's your name? He tells him, what's your quest? To seek the grail. But his third question is, is, is kind of a running gag through the whole film. His question, third question is, what's the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? And King Arthur's response is also part of that running gag through the whole film. He says, well, that depends. Is it an African swallow or a European swallow? And the bridge keeper himself says, I don't know that. Ah! And the bridge keeper is cast down into the gorge of eternal peril. Pure, pure craziness. Here's the point. 
Thousands and thousands of people have reduced the gospel of Jesus to this. That when you die, you're going to come to this bridge, and the gospel is the secret answer to the question that means God has to let you cross the bridge to enter into his eternal paradise. The gospel, for many people, has been reduced to the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. But the problem with that is... (laughs) Jesus never says anywhere in Scripture, now I proclaim to you the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. Jesus never says that. What what many, many people believe to be the gospel are words that Jesus never said. We, we all know that Jesus' gospel includes the forgiveness of sins, right, as, as an act of God's grace. We all, we all know Jesus' gospel includes the promise that death will not have the last laugh. But Jesus' gospel includes so much more than that. His gospel includes so much more than that because Jesus came as the kingdom bringer. Amen. He came to bring about now and here the kingdom of God that anybody has access to, anybody can live in if they choose to root themselves here. Jesus came as the kingdom bringer. That's good news, isn't it? (laughs) So now many, many people, probably thousands of people who thought that the kingdom of God was was millions of miles away now realize the, 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 the kingdom of God is not millions and millions of miles away. It's right here. It's right now. And it's available for you to live in if you want to. We, we, we don't hear the word kingdom very often. The ki- kingdom is not a word we use every day in our, in our English language on a regular basis. Dallas Willard says this. This is his definition of a kingdom. Your kingdom is the range of your effective will. So basically, your kingdom is is that sphere in which what you say goes, where, in a sense, you're you're kind of in control. People learn early on in life that they have a kingdom. And that's part of the reason why we don't like to be told by someone else what to do, right? You're not going to tell me what to do, because we understand we have a kingdom. Right? What, who, who's got, who, where are the mothers of two-year-olds? What's a two-year-old's favorite word? No. Because they're learning that they have a kingdom. My kingdom is the range of my effective will. It's where things go as I want them to go. In essence, where I am in control. On one hand, to, to a certain degree, having a kingdom is a good thing, right? It's part of what God made you for. This is Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion. Let them have dominion. That's, that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We were all made to exercise dominion, right? I mean, that's why Jesus had so many warnings about people being in positions of leadership and authority because it's so hard to lead, it's so difficult to lead without damaging someone else's ability to exercise dominion. That takes a lot of of grace, a lot of patience, a lot of humility. So Jesus says that there's this thing called the kingdom of God. It's real, it's wherever God's will is done, it's where he is in control, 
It's, it's that sphere in which everything that happens meets with his approval and delight. And everything is, is exactly as, as God wants it to be. The kingdom of God. So, so what does this kingdom look like? Who's, who's in charge of this kingdom? What, what is life like in this kingdom? I think this is what Jesus was trying to teach us about all the time in Scripture. His disciples come to him in Matthew 18 and say, who's the greatest in this kingdom? And Jesus says, well, who, who, whoever humbles himself, whoever humbles himself as a little child and be, becomes the slave of everyone else, they're, they're the greatest in this kingdom. Whoever humbles himself and becomes the servant of everyone else. Can you imagine if we lived in a society where, where people's faces were printed on, on magazine covers, not because they were beautiful or famous or successful or wealthy, but because they humbled themselves and found ways to bring joy and delight into the lives of others? Can you imagine if we lived in a world like that? Jesus said in Luke 14 that life in the kingdom of God it's like a banquet to which the poor, the blind, and the lame, and the left out all get invited. Can you imagine if we lived in a culture where people were constantly on the lookout for those who were left out, neglected, needy, abused and abandoned, and surrounded them, and loved on them, and made them feel like the guest of honor at a banquet? What would our world look like if nobody ever tore anyone else down? Where the only rumors that would be passed would be about people's good deeds and acts of service. TV talk shows about mothers and daughters who treasured their relationship with each other. And teenagers who treated their bodies with, with purity and respect. That's what life looks like in the kingdom of God. And watching over it all <laughs> as its greatest servant is our loving and gracious Heavenly Father, who is to be endlessly, endlessly praised and worshiped and celebrated. That's the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus came to bring. And I would argue that many of us have experienced together over the past 14 years. But... <laughs> But, but, there, there's this life as we know it, right? There is, there is this life um, as we've experienced, the, re, the reality of, of the difficult and painful world in which we live. The kingdom of earth. So, so, so what does this kingdom look like? Who, who runs the show here? <clears throat> life in the kingdom of earth. It's not pretty, right? You, you watch the news, you see what's going on. And I don't have to highlight any of it. <laughs> Our world is, is a mess. Broken and dark and lost and hurting and, and, and just awful. Sinful, painful. That's the kingdom of earth. That's the kingdom of earth. So Jesus had this plan. <laughs> Jesus had this plan, and th this was his idea. He said, I'm going to make this come down here. 
how, how can I make this kingdom come down here? This was his plan. What, what if we bring this kingdom down here? What if there was what Dallas Willard calls a divine conspiracy? A divine conspiracy that, that were to happen not violently, but secretly and quietly. Jesus said, here's my gospel. Here's my plan. Be beginning with my own life, my own body. I'm going to bring this down here. And those of you who follow me, I want you to devote your life to the same project. Okay, we're going to secretly bring this kingdom down here. I want you to pray like this. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that every week, don't we? Jesus didn't teach anyone to pray, God, this world is a mess. Get me out of there so I can come up there with you. <laughs> he didn't teach us to pray that way, did he? No. Jesus taught his followers to pray, make up there, come down here. Make up there, come down here. Heaven on earth. God, make heaven come down here. My family, my class at school, my church, my community, my neighborhood, my, my family, my life. Make up there, come down here. Do you think that's possible? I do. Do you think that could really happen? Because I think many of us weren't, weren't taught this very clearly. There are in the Bible um, promises and descriptions, pictures and stories of, of what life could look like in this kingdom. Right? What life can look like for people who choose to root themselves here. And, and some of these pictures are quite extraordinary. If you read through the New Testament especially. Extraordinary. And, and they're presented as things we, we really ought to expect. We, we read in John's Gospel... On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty, anyone who's discontent, who's ever dissatisfied, whoever feels longing or wants something, let him come to me and drink, Jesus says. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flowing from within. Isn't that a beautiful picture? <laughs> Streams of living water flowing from within your soul. Jesus says that anyone who believes in me, and I love how the old King James puts it, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Out of his belly. The, the, the Greek word that's used there is koilios. Koilios. It's, it's, it's the center of your being, the core of who you are. It's that place that gets, that gets tied up in knots when you're anxious and scared to death when you're afraid and, and makes your temples throb when you're angry. That is unsatisfied, discontent, ungrateful, unhappy. Jesus is saying, if you follow me right down in your guts, Jesus says, right down in your guts, you'll be flowing with energy and hope and love and power and freedom because God loves you and that's a settled deal and nothing you can ever do will change that. And purpose, because he has something for you to do. And that's something for you to do. It might, it might be very upfront and visible. It might be behind the scenes and not very visible, but in God's kingdom, it doesn't matter. 
because they're all equally important. And it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It only matters what our God thinks about our obedience to him and what he's calling us to. Turn, turn to any book in the New Testament and, and you see this, this picture that gets painted, this picture of amazing life. One of my favorites is 1 Peter chapter 1. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. He, he, he continues on as he writes, You have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so you have sincere love for one another. He, he goes on to say, he says that they are ridding themselves of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and they've humbled themselves under God's mighty hand. Now, how, how many of you would say that this picture, this pretty much describes you? Right? You're filled with an inexpressible joy. You are ridding yourself of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and slander. And when people are around you, they just naturally notice your belly is flowing with rivers of living water, and you've more or less mastered the art of humility. Raise your hands, would you? Yeah, I didn't think so. Me neither. Here's what I think happens. And this is what happened to me after I became a Christian 28 years ago at Penn State University. I'm overwhelmed by what I'm reading. And I was reading the Bible like a maniac. I was so on fire for Jesus. I'm overwhelmed by, by all that I'm reading and experiencing and thinking, wow, you know, being a Christian is going to be amazing. <laughs> and then challenges and heartache and hardships came along. And I was like, whoa, this is not what I realized and understood. I had to I went through some growing pains. I'm sure you did too. But here's what, I, here's what I think happens. I think that many people initially hear about the gospel and they're overwhelmed by this vision of hope and, and they say yes, absolutely yes. And for a time they're drawn to scripture and they, and they love worship and, and they serve in the, in, in the church. They want to tell others about Jesus, and, 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 and certain things change in their life, right? Maybe language gets cleaned up a, a, a bit. Certain addictions get overcome, and they start serving in the church. But, but over time, something kind of stalls. And instead of my life looking like this amazing picture that gets painted in, in the New Testament, more often than not, it looks, it looks more like this. I, I yell at my children. I worry too much about money and my job. I get jealous of other people who are more successful and attractive than me. I use deception to get out of trouble. I pass judgment on people a lot. And when, when I read these words from the New Testament about, about putting off the old nature and becoming a new creature, instead of being inspired by them, they just make me feel discouraged or guilty or confused or tired or sad. I'm, I'm stuck with a gap between these two realities. There's this life in the kingdom of God that Jesus promises anyone who believes in me 
rivers of living water will flow within. And then there's this reality of life as I experience it on the kingdom of earth. And, and between the two, there's a gap. And so the question becomes, how do, how do people start closing the gap? What do you do when you're not closing the gap? I think what happens for many people is they develop gap management strategies. They'll, they'll decide, you know what? I'm just going to try harder. They, they, they might think, my problem is I'm just not being heroic enough in my effort. So I'm going to try harder, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up earlier. I'm going to pray longer. I'm going to read another book. I'm going to listen to more sermons. I'm going to serve harder. I'm going to work, work more to be nicer to my family. I'm going to close this gap by sheer spiritual elbow grease. You hear about somebody who, who gets up at 5 o'clock in the morning to pray, and you feel gu guilty. So you decide, oh, I'm going to do that too. So you, you decide you're going to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to pray. Even though at 5 o'clock in the morning you are dazed and confused and groggy and grumpy, and nobody wants to be around you at 5 in the morning. Not even Jesus wants to be around you at 5 o'clock in the morning. But you decide, oh, this is, this is hard and, and exhausting and miserable, so it, it must be spiritual. And maybe you keep it up for a few days or a few weeks, but you can't sustain it. So then you stop. And of course, after you stop, you feel guilty. And then you start something else, and, and the vicious cycle continues. But the secret is this, you're tired. You're tired, not, not, not just physically tired. You, you are weary in your soul. You're, you are the ones to whom Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And even for some of you, those words might be confusing to you right now because for some of you, even coming to Jesus, even the thought of coming to Jesus right now is just exhausting for some of you. Some people handle this gap by, by rededicating their lives. I've tried this one too once or twice, thinking that maybe they can recapture that feeling once again that they had when they first became a Christian. But again, after a few days or weeks, it wears off because it doesn't close the gap. It doesn't close the gap. Some people switch spiritual venues. They'll go, they'll go church hopping. They'll go from one church to another, thinking that's going to close the gap. But after a while, the gap is just too painful. When we, when we read the kind of words that we do in the New Testament, we decide it's not really possible. We become discouraged or, or, or hopeless so inwardly. We decide, you know what, such a different and beautiful way of life, that's just really not possible. That's not realistic. Oh, they may stay a Christian. They may stay active serving in the church somewhere. But they decide in their spirit, you know, there's really not much that can be done about this gap. And so secretly they give up. And maybe some of you have done that. But what if there is another way? What if there is another way? What, what, what if Jesus was right? 
What if it really is possible to become increasingly alive with love and joy with rivers of living water flowing from within your soul and it's not by trying harder? What if that's possible? What if, what if it really is true what, what Paul says that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion? What if it really is true for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose? What, what, what if it really is true that we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are indeed being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory? What, what, if, what if all that really is true? What if, what if Jesus was right? Now, now, the picture that Jesus uses for this kind of life, this, this life in the kingdom, life in the spirit, the picture that he uses is the picture of a river. There is a river of life that's, that's, that's flowing all the time, rivers of living water, available to you, available to me. You know, years ago, I was walking through um, Walmart, and you know, they have those, those displays in the center of the aisle with, with things they want to get rid of and sell, you know, they catch your eye, and they had a, a, a display of all these uh, DVD movies. And they had this, uh, this one movie, I'd never, I'd never, I hear the book is tremendous, I've never read the book. But they have this, um, I see this picture on the front cover of this DVD of this guy fly fishing in Montana with a beautiful sunset behind him and I'm just, I just, I bought this movie because of the beauty of that picture. And, and I was really into fishing at the time. Um, so I bought this, this movie, it's directed by uh, Robert Redford with a title that I absolutely love. It's called A River Runs Through It. And it's set in um, Missoula, Montana along the Bitterroot River. And um, I, th I believe the actor is Tom Skerritt who plays the father. He's a, he's a Presbyterian minister who's a very stern, strict father raising two boys. And um, the, the, the movie's about uh, the challenges of life that this family and these boys go through from childhood through adolescence, even as adults. And time and time again, children, adolescents, adults, time and time again, the boys return to the river to, to, to fish the river because in the movie, the river is a picture of grace. It's a picture of grace. It's... It's healing, it's therapeutic for them to continue to return to the river. Words for rivers or streams in the Bible used more than 150 times. More than 150 references in scripture to rivers or streams. Um, most often to depict spiritual life. And this image is used for, for a very good reason. <laughs> Um, as you know, Israel was, was mostly a desert. It didn't have, you know, mighty rivers like we have here, like the, the, the mighty Mississippi or, or the Hudson River, or even, or even like here in Connecticut, the Farmington River or the Connecticut River. It didn't have traditional rivers. It had, Israel had wadis, which were basically troughs that would run through the sand, and after a rainstorm, they would fill up, and for a time, there would be water. 
<laughs> in these wadis for a time. Most often they were just dry gulches, but sometimes they would have water in them depending on the rain. And in Israel, everybody understood this. A full river, that's life. A dry gulch, that's death. They, they understood that. They understood that clearly. We, we, we don't know much about what the Garden of Eden looked like, but one thing we know is a river runs through it. Genesis 2 verse 10 says, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. This image is used throughout Scripture to depict spiritual reality. There, there's a flow of God's presence and God's power that brings life in this world. The river of grace. Psalm 46.4 says, There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Psalm 1. A person who is rooted near the rivers of life will be filled with life. But if that river gets, gets dammed up or, or polluted or, or, or blocked or cut off, then there's death. Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O God. You know that chorus, right? As the deer. I think a lot of people misunderstand that psalm very badly. This is desert country. All the wadis have dried up, and literally, not figuratively, literally, that deer is going to die. That deer is not going to be able to find water. It's going to die. This, this is a matter of life and death. And in Israel, they, they understood that all the time. People saw that every day. That deer is going to die. And the psalmist is saying, the psalmist isn't saying, oh, I want to sing some nice choruses about Jesus, or I want to do some more praying. This psalm has nothing to do with my want to factor for God. This is not a statement of desire. It's a matter of fact. The psalmist is saying, if the flow of your spirit is cut off to me, like the flow of water is cut off to the deer, if the flow of your spirit is cut off to me, I'm, I'm dead. I'm dead without you. I'm nothing without you. My existence without the flow of God's spirit in my life becomes a prolonged experience of unsatisfied desire, spiritual dryness, moral failure, and then death. I'm, I'm desperate for you to God. I'm, I'm, I'm dead without you. I need your presence. I need the flow of your river in me day by day, moment by moment. The river is life. The river is grace. That's why in Revelation 22, John says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God. So from the opening scene of Genesis until the closing chapter of Revelation, God creates, restores, and redeems, and recreates a world that is to be full of life. And a river runs through it. So what if, so what if the Spirit of God is like a river flowing all the time and your job isn't to try harder or run faster or get up earlier. What if your job is just simply to jump in the river? What if the gospel, the good news, the euangelion, 
is that this magnificent God of ours is present and at work in every moment, in every square inch of the universe. And your job is simply, and my job is simply to jump in the river. How do I not do those things that, that close me off to the flow of the Spirit? How do I keep myself aware and submitted so the rivers of water continue to flow through my belly? the center of my being? How do I just learn to flow with the Spirit? It's a daily process of surrender to Him and His will and His plan. You know, several weeks ago, the last time I preached, I, I talked about that, that surfing illustration, you know, the, the, the gym class that they offer at, at uh, Point Loma Nazarene University in San Diego. And remember, who, whose job is it to make a wave? Yeah, it's God, God's job to make a wave, right? Our, our job is to ride it. God's job to make the wave. The surfer's job is to ride that wave. But again, the good news is that if, the, if, if you wipe out or, or fall off or can't successfully navigate that wave on the surfboard, the good news is there's another wave coming right along behind it. God just keeps sending them. He's like a wave machine. <laughs> God keeps sending the waves. And our job is to simply get back up on the surfboard and, and try again. Every moment, every moment is another chance, another opportunity to get right back in the flow of the Spirit. Just surrender to Him. So, so, so how does this kingdom of God get communicated in this dark, lost, fallen, broken, sinful world that we live in. Somebody has to help people imagine what's it look like up here. Again, I think Jesus was trying to do this all the time in Scripture. Jesus was trying to communicate all the time what this kingdom looks like. That's why he kept using stories and, and images, pictures and parables. He was trying to communicate <laughs> what life looks like. He wasn't just trying to get people's attention. He was trying to set people's hearts on fire for one thing, the kingdom of God. So Jesus would tell stories over and over again. What, what's the kingdom of God like? To, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God, he says. It's like a man who finds a buried treasure and then hides it again. Okay, that seems kind of strange. That seems kind of weird. Why, why would a man bury a treasure that he just found? Je Jesus's point here is that when somebody gets the kingdom, when, when somebody gets it, they realize what an incredible gift they have, and they would do anything to hold on to it and to keep it. They'd sell anything they had to, in order to get it, and they would do so in their joy because they understand what an amazing, amazing gift they've been given. And Je Jesus does this all the time. To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? You know, I, I, I think mothers would agree with this. Uh, um, mothers, your firstborn, well, not just your firstborn child, any child you have, the first time you hold your baby in your arms, I mean, you think of the elation and the joy that you experience in that moment. Is there anything better than that? I see a lot of moms shaking their head no. 
I know for me, the first time I held Malachi, my firstborn son, Malachi was five weeks early, and so he had to immediately go into triage for 12 hours before we could touch him, before, before I could meet him, before I could hold my son. And, the, and when I finally got to, that, that he did so well, <laughs> they shrunk that to six hours. So six hours after he was born, I finally got to hold Malachi, and I wept uncontrollably. I'd prayed for a, for a son for years. And then I prayed for a daughter, and God gave me a daughter. But the first time you hold your child in your arms, is there a better feeling of elation and joy than that? You know, uh, years ago, Tani and I served um, at a church in New York right along the, the bank of the Hudson River, and there was, this, there was this gentleman in the church, Dennis. He was the church treasurer. And Dennis was what I called a, a canoe-aholic. He was, every chance he got, he was, he was out in his canoe, canoeing, and, and usually out in the Hudson River. Now, now, you know the Hudson River is not a small river. And, and on top of that, it's tidal. So, you know, good, good, good luck navigating the currents of the Hudson River in a canoe with a paddle, right? I mean, that's, but Dennis would do this, and he, would, he was always asking me, Gary, you got to come with me. Gary, you got to come with me. Sometime you need to come with me, and we're going we're gonna to canoe across the Hudson River. I'm like, are you nuts? A canoe across the Hudson River? Like, we will not survive. <laughs> but Dennis was, he was a machine. So one day, he talked me into meeting him early on a Saturday morning to canoe across the Hudson River. There was a, there was a creek that flowed through town, Wappinger's Creek. Shallow, calm waters. I'm like, can we just, can we just canoe around Wappinger's Creek? This is great. But we head out Wappinger's Creek out to the mouth of the Hudson River. We get into the Hudson River, and oh my goodness. So you know, we're going from, from the East Bank to the West Bank. I mean, I, I don't know half a mile, it's a, it's, a huge, it's a huge stretch across the river at this particular section um, north, of, north of Beacon, New York, up towards Poughkeepsie. So we're, we're going across this, this, this river, and the current is strong, and I think the tide's coming up, and so we start on, on you know, we're going east to west, and we, we eventually get across, I think it took us about an hour to get across, and we're, I don't know how far north we are, but the current took us way north till we got all the way across. And we get to the West Bank and I just literally collapse on, on the bank. We took a bunch of Gatorade and some, some, some fuel <laughs> to, to recharge our batteries for the way back, but I'm just exhausted. We laid on that bank, I laid on that bank for about 45 minutes until we were ready to start the journey back. And the current was still, the, the tide was still coming up, so the current's still going north. And so we had to fight that to get back down to Wappinger's Creek. So we had, to, we had to work even harder to get back to where we started from. And it was just, you talk about a workout. Um, I'd never been so exhausted in my life. But I got to tell you, when, I, when we finally got into the mouth of Wappinger's Creek, oh my goodness, the feeling of elation and joy that we did that, that I accomplished that, was just, uh, was just amazing. Just amazing to finally reach that, that point of Wappinger's Creek after canoeing back and forth across the Hudson. To, to what can I compare the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is like finally reaching the mouth of Wappinger's Creek after canoeing back and forth across the Hudson River. To what can I 
compare the kingdom of God, it's like holding your firstborn child in your arms for the first time. To what can I compare the kingdom of God? It's like getting an envelope in the mail that says, you may have won $75 million with Ed McMahon's picture on it, then opening up and finding out you really have won $75 million. To what can I compare the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is like a man named Jed, poor mountaineer, never kept his family fed. And then one day he was shooting at some food and up from the ground. Any Beverly Hillbillies fans in here? You folks are too young for that. I'm off the rails, forgive me. The kingdom of God has been a gift that Tanya and I have enjoyed and our family serving here with you for the past 14 years. It's been incredibly rich, incredibly rich. An absolute gift. The kingdom of God is when somebody starts to laugh or to cry or to sing or to dance. And you realize that, that this life we have together in the church, in the family of God, we realize that this life that we have together is so good and so rich and so blessed that you want to Love and serve and give yourself to the one who gave it to you. And there's nothing better. There's nothing better than living life in the kingdom of God. I don't know how people out there, I don't know how they do it. This, this, <laughs> this gift of the kingdom of God, of journeying through life together as a body of believers, there's nothing like it. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing gift to be living life in the kingdom of God together with all of you. An amazing gift. So why Tani and I, <laughs> um, again, what we've realized and enjoyed for the past 14 years here in this family, why our hearts are, are heavy, why so many of your hearts are heavy and sad and having a hard time saying goodbye because we've enjoyed kingdom life together. And there's nothing like it. There's no place like the church of Jesus Christ. Nothing like it. Heaven on earth, literally. Literally heaven on earth. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it has its difficulties and its challenges and its painful moments, but we go through those together, right? And it's a gift that we have each other. It's a gift, an absolute gift. So can I ask you a favor? Would you ask God to let this river flow in you? Would you do that? And when tomorrow comes, ask him again tomorrow. <laughs> and the next day, and the day after that. Because I think it would be terribly sad if together with God's help, you, 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 you built this church, the Manchester Church of the Nazarene, with an incredible worship team and dynamic men's and women's ministries and terrific youth and children's ministries and, and an outstanding recovery program and a fantastic Christian school. But did it, 
all with people who were tired and dry and empty and lonely and frightened and sad. Because the one that we serve, he came with really good news. That you and I are here and now part of this fabulous, amazing, and incredible, incredible kingdom. And a river runs through it. our privilege at this time to commission and send Gary and Tanya to a new destination. I'm going to invite them to come and stand before me. As far as we can tell, this is our final sacred act together. In the same way Paul and Barnabas were commissioned and sent into the world, we send these members of our family to Laurel, Delaware. Notice I did not say to the Laurel, Delaware Church of the Nazarene. It is true that the new assignments the lights will have is within the Church of the Nazarene there. but every time we repeat the communion liturgy, we pray that by the body and blood of Christ, we are being renewed to be the body of Christ for the world. And so we are sending the lights to Delaware, to those who are lost in Delaware, to those who are broken in Delaware, to those who are sitting in darkness in Delaware. And in Delaware, they will join an exceptional group of people who are already on mission in that place, doing an outstanding job of being salt and light in their community. We're just sending them a little more light. <laughs> and we are trusting that God will use them together to bring his kingdom in increasing measure to that corner of his world. And so we charge you before God to live lives worthy of the calling you have received. We charge you to trust the one who calls you, for he is also the one who provides for you. We charge you to cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. We release you and send you according to the wisdom of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit so that you may serve our Lord and King, Jesus Christ, according to his calling. God bless you. We do have a little love offering for you. And I'm going to invite the congregation now to come behind you, and we would like to pray for you. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I just, we just all come before you.
just to thank you for the blessings the lights have been for us over this 14 years. For the love they have showed, not only to us, but to this community. For the grace that they have shown in all of the work that they have done. For the examples they have shown us as to how to love others and to connect with others. And Lord, we know that our hearts are heavy, all of us. But Lord, we also know that this is your will. That your will is to bring them to Delaware to continue your kingdom there. And Lord, we just pray that your kingdom comes. Not only to Manchester, but the world, Delaware, and every place in between. We know that you go before them, and we know that there are going to be times where they're going to be discouraged. There may be overflowing toilets, who knows? (laughs) Whatever it may be, Lord, we know that there may be discouragements along the way, but you will be with them as you've been with them here. And we just pray for all of them as they go that you give them traveling mercies as they travel and that you just bless them in every way that is possible. Father God, we thank you for this family that you have knit together that we pray for right now. Father, thank you for the privilege of watching these children grow into young adults in some cases as we look at Malachi standing so tall and strong here. Father, thank you for the examples that uh, Tanya and Gary have shared with us about family life, about marriage, about parenthood. Father, thank you for the things they are going to be bringing with them to Delaware, things that we perhaps have helped grow in them. I thank you for the opportunity we've all had to minister together. But Father, as we uh, think of them starting afresh and anew, I want to uh, pray for the new opportunities that they'll have. Father, I pray for uh, Malachi as he starts high school very soon, in just a couple of days. I pray, Father, you would help him to find a place in this new school where he can excel and he can be a light for you, not just with his last name, but in every way. Help him, Father, to uh, be strong in his academics, strong in his uh, physical activities as he participates in sports, Father. Give him great joy, but most importantly, Father, give him a group of friends who will lead him in the right place, who will give him good advice and who will look to him for that very same thing. Father, I pray for Addison as she starts fifth grade in just a couple of weeks. I know, Father, that she has so much to bring into her classroom. They are going to be so blessed as they get to know her, as they love her as we do. I pray, Father, for her circle of friends at church. I know that she has uh, done much to influence um, the younger girls around her, and I pray she might be able to continue that ministry, that, Father, she would grow into a young woman who uh, shines brightly for you. Would you just um, be with this family? But, Father, would you touch 
Addison and Malachi in particular, we've been focusing a lot on Tanya and Gary, which is good and right. But Father, we want to remember to continue to pray for and to support um, all of the lights. And uh, Father, just be with Addison and Malachi. You know the burdens of their hearts, some of their secret fears and anxieties. I pray that you would just bless them and touch them. In the name of Christ, amen. Father God, we thank you so much for these couple of days here in Manchester and for the way Pastor Dan has organized a sending off of his family that is so dear and loved by this family. Lord, I thank you for their lives and I thank you for the message that Pastor Gary has shared this morning about the kingdom of God. My mind has gone to the throne and the Father sending the Son to bring the kingdom here and the heartache and knowing the hurts and the pain that he would sustain, but the pain of those who loved him, his mother, he knew she would be standing there watching her son die. He knew the disciples as they went out would face great trials and tribulations and suffering of all kinds. But God, as Jesus returned, leaving them alone, he sent the Spirit. And it was the Spirit, the power of God in those disciples that continued to bring the message of the kingdom to all who would hear it and all who would hear it and wanted thirst as the deer thirst for water, they would find it and they would experience those rivers of living water. Thank you, God, for this message. May we take it with us and may the lights take it with them to the new community they go to serve and to share the kingdom of God. As they have lived it here, we believe they will live it there. Yes. And they will find strength yes. in you, O oh God. Yes. So may your spirit empower each one of them individually and them as a family. Yes. And may this church hear the message and may they experience your love and grace to share with the world that they live in. Amen. May your blessings Amen. be continually enriching their lives in yes. this new assignment. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And uh, Lord, I pray for this congregation yes. that we pray for every week that your spirit, yes. God, would continue to anoint Pastor Dan Jesus. and each member of this congregation. Yes. May the kingdom be realized anew and afresh weekly here around this altar in, in this place of worship. Thank you for the privilege of coming here and worshiping, yeah. honoring you, celebrating all that you have done and are doing and will do. We want to continue to do that as we go forth, and we will be careful to give you the praise yeah. and the glory and honor in Jesus' name, mm. that powerful name. <laughs> we praise you. Amen. Amen. Almighty God. 
to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these your servants, that through them and by the body and blood of Christ, we may know the presence of the living Christ and be renewed as the body of Christ for the world, redeemed by Christ's blood. May your spirit sanctify us that all of your children might be one, united in mission, and committed to loving God and neighbor with all that we are. To the glory of God now and forever, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.